I am delighted to welcome Professor Michael Foley, we're going to call him Mike today, to Church and Culture. I met him recently at that conference on Catholic education, uh, the Odontus conference, and hit it off with him and asked him to be on the radio show. I'm sorry I hadn't met him years earlier. Let me tell you about him. He has a Ph.D. in systematic theology from Boston College, and he's been teaching at Baylor in Waco, Texas, in the Great Text Program since 2004, and loves it. Loves both Baylor and Waco. He loves teaching, writing, and speaking to audiences about topics ranging from theology and film to the fine art of pious drinking. Now, let me tell you about some of the books that have been generated out of these interests. In 2015, Drinking with the Saints and its two sequels. 2018, Drinking with St. Nick, an Advent Christmas book. In 2020, Drinking with Your Patron Saints. I can only imagine the next one will be Drinking with Your Favorite Martyrs, but that's a joke. He's already written The Politically Incorrect Guide to Christianity, Gus Finds God, a children's book, Wedding Rites, Guide to Traditional Weddings, Why Do Catholics Eat Fish on Friday, and we're going to talk about one of four translations and commentaries he's written on the Early Dialogues of St. Augustine, we're going to be talking about The Happy Life, but we'll also be talking about the other three dialogues that were published during this period of Augustine's life. Mike Foley, welcome to Church and Culture. Thank you so much, dealer. It's good to be on. Well, you know, your translation, commentary, and introduction, and by the way, these are all published by Yale. They're really worth having. The others are entitled Against the Academics, On Order, and Soliloquies. They are state-of-the-art, beautifully presented, beautifully edited. I even enjoyed reading the bibliography, Mike, to tell you the truth. <laughs> and with The Happy Life and the other three, what do you call them, the Kasiakam Dialogues? Is that how you say it? Kasikiakam. Kasikiakam. Where do we find Augustine in his life? This is after conversion, but before baptism, right? That's right. So one of the things that makes these books or works so unique is that he wrote them as a catechumen, um, which means he may not have known some of the mysteries of the faith because of the way that the Church was at the time. They had the so-called discipline of the secret. They didn't tell you the the creed or the Our Father until just a couple of weeks before you were baptized, and you didn't know the full mystery of the Eucharist until after you were baptized. So this we catch Augustine after the famous scene in the Confessions where he reads the lines about giving up, I believe, you know, bad things, passionate yep. things. And before he goes for baptism from St. Ambrose at the Cathedral in Milan, correct? Right. Now, who is he on? He's on a rescinded retreat. Why is he there? Who is he with? What was the point of this retreat? Probably to prepare for baptism. He had a few months before he would be baptized. He had that conversion experience in the summer, of 386, he had to go to Milan to register his name for baptism on the Feast of the Epiphany, January 6, 387, and then he had to hang around for Lenten preparation, and then was received into the Church on Holy Saturday, 387. So this retreat at Kasikiakum, which was a villa owned by one of his wealthy friends, took place in around November, December 386. You know, and what you say, I, I found very helpful. You said that we catch Augustine more or less at an intellectual phase of his conversion when he's developing what you term philosophical theology. And it's so interesting because this is not the blood and guts Augustine of the Confessions, right? The tone is very different. 
this is an intellectual's part. His he's trying to figure out how far can rationality take him. Am I right? Well, it's, I would say that these dialogues focus as kind of the preambula fidei, right? The, right. The, you're right that they they are interested in rationality, but what's fascinating about them is that they're kind of structured in a way to to lead you to the faith. Um, so they start with, in a sense, reason, but faith is never excluded. And by the time you get to the end of the dialogue, you see the reasonableness of the Christian faith. And as you explained to us, the these were not originally written as dialogues. These these were these discussions. These four discussions were put together as in dialogue form by Augustine and one other. Uh, who was the other friend that helped him do this? His friend uh, Olybius. Yeah. And the happy life comes out between the two parts of against the academics before and on order and soliloquies. It is it important to know the relationship of the happy life to the early to the previous dialogue against the academics. Well, he did intend them all to be written or read as a unit, and all four dialogues reference each other. So, and there there is a way in which you read them in the order that he intended. You are undergoing a certain kind of curriculum. So ideally, you would read all four and read them in the order that he wrote them. On the other hand, each one is a gem, and On the Happy Life can be read on its own with great profit. Oh, yes. You know, I uh, would give us a short taste of the, what is the gist of Against the Academics, so we can have it in the background of our discussion of A Happy Life. That's a good question. Ostensibly, it's about the, not the academics, meaning, you know, college professors, but academic skeptics. The, uh, the school of the academic skeptics had particular teachings on skepticism. And one of their claims was that nothing can be truly known. And instead, there is a sort of theory of the plausible or probable that we can rely on to make decisions. Um, the title itself is kind of controversial. Augustine, in his own writings, referred to it as against the academics or on the academics. And then in another writing, he referred to the title as on the academics. But one of his biographers used the title against the academics, and that has stuck and ever stuck. since. <laughs> so... I think that's an important distinction because he is critical of the academics in the dialogue, but he's also respectful of them. He's not 100% against them. He actually concedes that they're right about a lot of things about reason's tenuous grasp on reality. Um, so he is actually more sympathetic than the title would believe, but at the end of the day, he does have to depart from the academics in one crucial respect, the truth can be known. And if you can't see that on the basis of reason alone, we have our Christian faith that also affirms the same thing. I want to remind our listeners, I'm talking to Professor Mike Foley of Baylor University, and uh, he teaches there in the Great Text Program and has since 2004, talking about his translation of four early dialogues of St. Augustine in between his conversion that we all know about from the confessions and his his formal baptism in Milan. You know, one thing that struck me on the very first page is how he sets the scene to be th three different kind of sailors on the sea and what, you know, where they're going and what they're point of view is, what their mind and character is. But at the very bottom of that first page, he makes the point that 
this one one group of say not so happy sailors could be hit by a tempest and taken to the port they should have gone to in the first place. In other words, fortune can e- impact so-called bad men to get them to the right place. Am I over? Am I overstating that? No, not at all. And of course, that's how Augustine sees himself. He got some kind of weird lung disease that compelled his resignation from teaching at the same time that he was having this conversion. And so misfortune can be the greatest fortune in your life. It can finally wake you up and lead you to the right things. Now, if I remember right, I mean, I've, I've dug at this because I wrote a book on happiness, the history of the idea of happiness. Um, I don't recall any pre, maybe Cicero, but I don't recall this theme of fortune playing this kind of role in an understanding of happiness. It's certainly different from how Aristotle saw it. Well, uh, there are a couple of classical uh, uh, precedents. Um, the founder of the school of Stoicism, Zeno, was shipwrecked and washed ashore and walked into a bookstore and picked up a work of philosophy and was converted at that point to the philosophical life and later said that was the greatest, that shipwreck was the greatest fortune huh. that had befallen him. And I it think is that, no, that certainly prefigures, well, I mean, it, it's a it's a Christian part of a Christian worldview, but it certainly prefigures the larger drama of Christianity that he'll write in the City of God and Confessions. Yes, and you can see how the view is congenial with Christianity because there's a way in which, obviously, man's murdering God is the greatest misfortune, and yet from that comes the, the greatest fortune of salvation. Well, tell us basically about the three sailors, and not only a tempest they faced that we just mentioned, but the mountain that he talks about. So Augustine has this wonderful cover letter. All these dialogues have a cover letter where he sort of introduces the subject and dedicates it to somebody. And in this particular introduction, he does a marvelous job combining certain tropes that are common in philosophical literature. One is the idea of a port of safety, a port of happiness, versus the storms and waves of misfortune on the open sea. And he talks about three different kinds of people, some who have no problem getting to the port, some who are completely adrift, and some, like himself, who go out to sea and through misfortune are driven back to the port, where he differs from previous philosophers is that the port is not happiness. The port is philosophy, and the dry land is happiness. The point is to get back on shore. And there's one obstacle that the other philosophers didn't mention, and in a weird way it is philosophy itself, or I should say some philosophers. There is a sort of volcanic mountain right in front of the port, and it is the mountain of pride. And a philosopher can get stuck on that mountain. He's still pointing to the right things, he still sees the right things, but because he's so puffed up with pride, he, he does not reach the land itself. So Augustine has, has literally redrawn the map when it comes to happiness. I've known a few of those guys. Have you? Yeah, that's right. And and Augustine says they're not going on the land themselves, but even when they're on the mountain, they're very helpful in pointing seafarers to the right destination, that they can still be useful guides, but their their pride keeps they themselves from making the final step. Now, when he begins the dialogue, he focuses on the not only the existence of body and soul, but the difference between them. Why is it so important for him 
to start that way with this with this dialogue. So one of the big themes of all these dialogues is the ability to see spiritual reality, the ability to see intelligible reality. That there is a difference between intelligible uh, things and material things. But one of the recurring themes of on the happy life is a comparison of the goods of the soul with the goods of the body. So there are differences, but we can also draw analogies between the two. And the wonderful conceit of On the Happy Life is that it's Augustine's birthday party, and they're having a birthday party. They're having, uh, but instead of a birthday cake, they're having delights of the mind. For both the body and the soul need nourishment. And that's how the theme of happiness is approached. What is it that will nourish the soul and make it happy? And, of course, there's no argument about whether the body is equal to or superior to the soul. It's just a, it's an assumption which, of course, I would agree with, but uh, some might not nowadays. That's right. And, and none of the crowd, none of the audience at Kazikiakum disagrees. They all believe that the soul is superior to the body and that it has different needs from the body, even if they are analogous. And th- during the argument, there's there's kind of almost an ascetic thread where the person who is rich with soul sometimes is willing or finds it necessary to forego su- the suffering of the body in order to keep his priorities straight. Yes, that is correct. Although the ascetical note is not as strong in this writing as it will be in Augustine's later writings when he becomes more accustomed to Christianity. Um, But one thing is clear, he he does note that people who are obsessed with the goods of the soul can sometimes become so obsessed that they forget to have lunch. (laughs) I was never one of those. (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking with Professor Mike Foley of Baylor, about his translation of Augustine's early dialogue on the happy life. One thing I, I noticed throughout the dialogue, Mike, and I wanted to ask you this, is they seem to be avoiding the notion that Aquinas has later on of imperfect happiness. It seems to be that happiness is either perfect or it's not happiness. Is, is that too crude a way of looking at it? Not at all. Uh, so you're right that Augustine himself does not make that distinction because for two reasons. Number one, he's working out of a Platonic framework, which also Cicero shares, where they, they had this kind of all-or-nothing definition of happiness. Basically, it was like pregnancy. You're either pregnant or you're not. You're not half pregnant. You're not imperfectly pregnant. You either, you know, the rabbit dies or it doesn't, period. Um, and so they don't recognize degrees of happiness. It's just one or the other. But the reason why Augustine uses that framework is not just because he's a Platonist or he loves Cicero, but it's actually pedagogically useful. Um, it, it's a way of honing your sights on the true goal and not letting up until you reach that goal. Because there is a theme throughout the dialogue that is brought up by his that is brought up by his friends that if you look at a very wealthy man, he may seem full, quote unquote. He may have a fullness. But that fullness is also responsible for a fear of losing those material things, those possessions. So there is always this uh, movement in this dialogue toward the good which cannot be taken away by bad luck or fortune. That's exactly right. So in other words, the bar is high that you would have to possess the truth in 
and wisdom and grace in all its fullness and have absolutely no fear that it can be taken away. And not just absolutely no fear, because a fool can also lack fear. So it has to be a well-grounded absence of fear, an absence of fear based on total knowledge, total certainty. So you can see the dialogue moving toward concepts like virtue, like wisdom, uh, knowledge. You can see it moving toward judgment, so to speak, right? Because yes. you, if, you, if you're going to live a life that isn't filled with fear, you have to make some kind of, what, stoical choices or even Epicureans' choices about what is the safest uh, position to take. Right, and of course Augustine lands on Christianity as the path that can provide you happiness, and he even offers a kind of concession. You know, earlier we talked about the degrees of happiness so he won't use that language, but he will say at the very end of the dialogue that faith, hope, and love provide the Christian a certain joy in this life and then perfect happiness in the next. Well, you know, one really interesting thing that struck me is the role, the central role his mother uh, takes in the dialogue, St. Monica. I mean, she's seems to be sort of ahead of the curve during the whole argument. One of the most fascinating things about these early dialogues is the role of Monica. Because one of the questions that comes up in the dialogue is how much of a liberal arts education do you need in order to become wise and happy? And Augustine is a beneficiary of a liberal arts education. It helped him in his conversion to Christianity, but he also recognizes that his mother, uh, who doesn't have a liberal arts education, is more pious and perhaps in some ways wiser than he. And so what is the relationship between a good education and the faith? And that kind of gets played out in the conversations between Monica and Augustine. She uh, coins a term which you translate as spazzes. <laughs> I looked at yes. your footnote there, and it seemed like it meant someone who is prone to fall. Is that right? That is correct. So Monica, uh, she has little patience. One big difference between her and Augustine is that she has little patience for long dense philosophical arguments. And she's not present in the first dialogue against the academics. And when she asks Augustine to summarize their position, and he does, she simply says, oh, they're spazzes. And uh, the, the word there in Latin, it was a North African term, uh, kind of a disparaging term for people who suffered from epilepsy. So she's calling them epileptics that they, you know, they, they gyrate, they, they convulse, they have all kinds of activities, but they never land on the truth. So that's her, her criticism, and it's actually a, an apt criticism, but of course, she uses this very sort of lowbrow language, politically incorrect, insensitive language, to dismiss them. You know, they try out every angle of formulation, so if... You know, if I were to say the basic building blocks of a happy life are fortune, virtue, wisdom, God, uh, even health of the body, uh, it seems as if they're they're trying out all kinds of variations on the connection between these things. This would be true of the whole classical world's meditation on happiness you for example you allude to the idea that someone can be happy while being on the rack which was held by some stoic philosophers because even on the rack under extreme pain you you maintain your virtue therefore you maintain your happiness uh but there seems this 
it's so rich, the dialogue, because of the way he uh, formulates, reformulates, uh, re- represents all these elements in looking for, well, just what are the components of happiness, or even are there components? That's exactly right. Uh, it's a short dialogue. It's the shortest of the four, at least. But it is surprisingly rich in its canvassing of the options. So, for example, they start out by saying, well, you're, you're happy if you obtain what you want. And you're like, yeah, that makes sense. If, you know, I, I want a hamburger and then I get it and I'm happier as a result. But then they think, whoa, but what if you want bad things? <laughs> Will that make you happy? Oh, okay. No, not really. Um, if you, want to be a serial murderer and then you become one that is not necessarily going to make you happier. Um, so what what is it? Well, how about if you get what you need? You want the right things and these are the things that you need and you get them. Oh, okay. So they're 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 hashing this out and they do so in a very delightful way. Yes. I would say that on the happy life is possibly Augustine's happiest work. It's the happiest of the four dialogues. It's the only one of the four dialogues that involves no tears. In the other three dialogues, there is a mixture of... There's either only crying at certain points, or a mixture of laughter and tears. But this is the only dialogue that has laughter but no tears. And that even contrasts with the Confessions, which, you know, is so beautiful, but it's it's poignant, it's, it can be heart-wrenching, it doesn't have a, a light tone in the way that uh, On the Happy Life does. Yeah, I'm talking with Professor Mike Foley about Augustine's uh, di- earlier dialogue on the happy life. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Professor Foley in just a moment. I'm back with Professor Mike Foley, who teaches at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, in the Great Text Program. And he is with us because he has this marvelous translation of, of Augustine's early dialogue, The Happy Life. Now, Mike, I wanted to press a little bit on the idea of seeking versus possessing. And they struggle a little bit with the characters in the dialogue with what is the status of a seeker, a seeker after God? It seems as if a seeker cannot be called happy. Correct. And that's one big difference between Augustine and the academics. They didn't think that man could attain wisdom, but they did hold that the mere search for wisdom was sufficient to confer happiness. And in the dialogue, one of Augustine's pupils, Lacentius, takes up this position. And it is, an, it is an interesting position. Certainly, anyone who loves philosophy would agree that the searcher of wisdom is better off than the guy who's not searching for wisdom. But does that make him truly happy? Um, because happiness has to be a, a perfect whole, complete right. fulfillment. It, it has to get yeah, exactly fulfillment is the is a great way to put it. So the search can bring you joy. It can be fulfilling, but it cannot bring total fulfillment unless you, you get your destination. You, you get what you want. Now I wrote a book where I traced the beginning of the psychological notion of happiness when it left the moral spiritual notion, what you call eudaimonism, in your book. And I found it in a poem by Lorenzo uh, de' Medici in the late 1300s where he described happiness as consisting in the chase rather than the capture. Now, of course, this is picked up by other people uh, later on, like Pascal and so forth. But in other words, when this this thing about seeking that these that these friends are arguing about becomes very important later on because seeking becomes the primary experience of a happy life on this earth. You know, it begins in the Renaissance. 
and developed, mm-hmm. of course, catastrophically after that. Absolutely. But, and obviously there is something true about the thrill of the chase. It is thrilling to be on the chase. And like, say, with, with hunting, or, or Pascal uses the example of gambling, once you have attained what you want, there is that joy of accomplishment, but then the feeling goes away. Which is it, precisely why it becomes a psychological version of happiness. Right, exactly. Because it turns but, in on itself. It turns in on the experience, not, not, on, not on the actual attainment. That's right. And, you know, speaking of uh, modernity, Hobbes at least had the intellectual honesty to call his version of happiness not happiness, but felicity. Right. He knew yeah, that he, he, true he happiness... He understood was, what, the, what that turn meant, what, where exactly. it was going to go. And, of course, he very tragically recommends that modernity be based on this notion of felicity, this constant thrill of the chase, this constant consumerism. But he knew that that was not true happiness. Which turns into power. And it's the quest for power as well. Yeah, Yeah. it turns into power. And uh, Now, let's talk about really the important moment in the dialogue. This is what our listeners will be interested in, where the... The sort of the ladder we've been climbing through these series of questions and answers, suddenly God becomes the center of of the discussion. And then eventually, of course, the Holy Trinity and our Lord Jesus Christ. But how how does he how does he imagine how does he how do they, I should say, manage to bring God front and center in the discussion? It almost seems like a sleight of hand, um, but each of the dialogues has this extremely subtle, but nevertheless palpable, Trinitarian ending. For Augustine, it's not just that God is the solution to all a man's problems, it is God in his Trinitarian nature. And uh, it is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that each in their own distinctive way sort of answer the question or complete the picture. And <laughs> what he does in On the Happy Life is quite remarkable. He says, well, you know, we need fullness, we need to be fulfilled, we need, and that means being filled to the top, and then we need to be filled at to the top with truth, and oh, oh my gosh, well, isn't that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the Father is fullness, and the Son is uh, you know, the, the, the right measurement and the Holy Spirit is what leads us to the truth. So, problem solved. <laughs> and what, what's, what's, it's compelling actually if you read it through. Uh, you can push at it and say they got to God because God was the necessary anchor to measure the mind, which is what wisdom is. Right. And that, uh, there had to be a measure, so to speak, larger than ourselves. That yes. you know, that either was from God or implanted in us by God. And the, but what couldn't someone say? And I wonder if ever, ever any of your students have ever said, uh, "But this isn't pers- This isn't a personal encounter. This is meant. This is an intellectual encounter." Oh. I have not had a student say that, but I I could see that objection. Well, it is intensely personal because it is, in a sense, psychological. What I mean by that is Augustine is showing you how the three divine persons satisfy the deepest yearnings and needs of your mind, your soul, your psyche. And he, he treats it as something that will have a profoundly transformative effect on you. So it's, it's certainly not personal in the sense that it is subjective, but it is personal in the sense that it, it fulfills you personally. I noticed in your introduction to this particular volume, you tell the reader that you should read these volumes as if your life depended on them. 
Yes. And I say I that just, about a lot of things, by the way. Go well, that on. gave me a big smile. Because, by God, it's true. And, uh, and I'm just glad a teacher like you would just come out and say what I think is, is absolutely true. You have to get clear on these things in particular. That is correct. And I'm also pushing back against a century of very bad scholarship about these dialogues where modern scholars approached these texts with a strip-mining attitude. They didn't really want to know what Augustine was trying to communicate. They were looking for evidence of whether he was truly an Orthodox Christian at this time of his life, or whether he was still kind of a recovering Neoplatonist. Hmm. And that's not necessarily a bad question, but the point is it's not Augustine's question. That's not why he wrote these dialogues. He wrote these dialogues for the reader to have some kind of a transformative uh, experience. This was so, evangelical, then. What's that? It had an evangelical purpose. Absolutely. No, he's he's trying to lay out breadcrumbs for other readers so that they can follow the same happy path that he found. And that's why he wrote these these books. And so, whether you agree with his answers or not, at least... Start with his questions, and don't just come in like a bull in a china shop with with your own questions. So uh, that's why I say take take these dialogues seriously and start where he starts. Uh, the talk a little about because I, I I've always thought Cicero's Tusculan Dis- Disputations is one of the really great books on the topic of happiness, which of course he wrote. In, tr- in grieving over his daughter's death. Yes. But, because I think you make some really good points that I think help to clarify Augustine over against the noble Romans. That is correct. Um, Cicero ultimately is, is forced to take a kind of stoic position on happiness. And I, I think... You, as you point out, his, his daughter died, so there may have been some personal consolation in that. I also think there was a pedagogical reason for it. It, it, it beat the other main alternative, which was Epicureanism. At least the Stoics had an idea of happiness that was also compatible with civic virtue and saving the Republic. And, and Cicero, of course, was very concerned with that. But Augustine has different fish to fry. Um, you don't have to be happy in this life um, if there is an afterlife. And so he's able to sort of take a more broad view of things. Well, he does. But in doing so, and I'm going to be the Thomist in this, at this moment, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, uh, he's not helping those of us on earth who are seekers, who are on a journey, who fall down and get up again, fall down and get up again. And yet we're constantly wondering, uh, searching in our minds anyway, our hearts for happiness because it's a, it's a totally natural implanted desire that can't be strangled and can't be turned off like a water hose pushing us, pushing us. And you think that this, uh, I'm sure that it's unfair to compare Aquinas to Augustine at this point. It seems to me that the issue I'm raising is more akin to how he treats the human condition in confessions. Yeah, um, well, again, at the end of the day, I don't think there is a significant difference between Augustine and Aquinas on the issue of happiness. The terminology is different, of course. Like you mentioned earlier, Aquinas will make an explicit distinction between perfect happiness and imperfect happiness. And Augustine has a different terminology. But How, would, how would he term that? How would he term that? Well, he, he, he just doesn't have the term. He, he doesn't have a term for imperfect happiness. What he has is the notion that a Christian 
has joy through the theological virtue of hope. And and so if you were to put that in a Thomistic key, you could say, okay, well, that could be the, the imperfect happiness. So he's not denying uh, that there is some version of happiness in this life, but he is reserving that term to happiness with a capital H, period. But isn't joy just another psychological state, such as, you know, comes out in the Renaissance? I mean, or is joy something deeper for Augustine than that? In the Confessions, Augustine gives a beautiful definition of happiness. It is joy in truth. Mm. Yeah, that works in this life. That works in this life. That's right. The, The delight of knowing, the delight of believing... And even Aristotle would agree with that. I think so. Yeah, because he said those who uh, do the best things will have the greatest, take the greatest pleasure in doing them. That's right. Um, okay, so that helps me. The and the point, of course, is uh, Augustine. If you see, know the backdrop of Augustine's life. You can see why he is pushing toward the sort of theistic conclusion rather than trying to make subtle philosophical distinctions uh, that merely clutter, sort of clutter the, I say, confuse the discussion. That's right. So each of the dialogues wrestles with a philosophical problem. And for the bulk of the dialogue, Augustine is remarkably deferential to the philosophers and the claims of philosophy, and he just kind of lets them run their natural course. And they kind of ultimately dead end. There's only so far that philosophy can take you. And then he comes in with this conclusion that says, hey, look, look how this Christian faith kind of like a jigsaw puzzle fits on exactly to where philosophy peters out. And so it's not a proof of Christianity by any means, but it shows how even from a rational perspective, there's something actually quite plausible about Christianity. It actually kind of makes sense. That doesn't make it necessarily true, but if you did believe in it, you wouldn't be betraying your reason. I'm going to read you from your translation on page 49. It says the following, But it is necessary even for the supreme measure to that it be a true measure, thus and thus as truth is begotten from measure, so to measure learned from the truth, and thus There is never truth without measure or measure without truth. Who is the Son of God? It has been said, truth. Who is it that has no father? Who other than the supreme measure? Whoever, therefore, comes to the supreme measure through the truth is happy. For souls, this is, quote, having God, that is, thoroughly enjoying God. For the rest... Although they are had by God, they don't have God. So what is what is the the Latin that you translated? They are had by God. Is it the sense of uh, possession? God possessing them, or them possessing God? That's one of the big debates of the dialogue. So they earlier on concluded that someone is going to be happy who, quote-unquote, has God, possesses God, if you will, which sounds really weird, but remember, this is just the start of the conversation, not the end. And then they realize, well, it's really God who possesses us when we, quote-unquote, possess God. Okay, fair enough. But then doesn't God possess 
everybody and everything. That's Which is what Monica is. always insists upon. Right. If, if God didn't, quote-unquote, possess creation, it would cease to exist. So, so anyway, there's this equivocation uh, or uncertainty about having God or possessing God. So that's why he's making those distinctions. There, there is a way in which the believing soul, the happy soul, possesses God in a way in which the unhappy soul does not. Well, it possesses it. It has to possess if it if it has the truth. It must possess it somehow intellectually, and it must connect then with the will. For the moral right. life to follow it, right? That is true. And then also, uh, it's funny, these I told you these dialogues are fruitfully read when they're read in order. Augustine lets his interlocutors and his readers wrestle with this, playing coy all the time, like a good Socratic teacher, when he knows exactly what he thinks about it. And... We go through page after page in On the Happy Life debating this issue, but in the soliloquies, he opens that dialogue with a prayer, and in one line he says, Oh God, um, I forgot exactly how he phrased it, but he basically says, Those who have God are those who see God. See God. Exactly. In other words, the beatific vision. Yes. Um, that's what it is, means to have God. It means to experience the beatific vision. So it, it, in one line, he solved the problem. <laughs> but these these are propedeutic works. They're designed to exercise us. And so he's not going to tell us that in the second dialogue. Now, why did he call the third dialogue on order? Uh, I, I've, cur- I've been curious ever since I saw that title. The... Uh, initial problem that on order deals with is the reconciliation of God's omnipotence and omnibenevolence with the existence of evil. And it hinges on the notion of order. Does evil mean that God is not ordering the universe? And if he's not ordering the universe, then he's not in charge. So they spend most of the time debating the uh, definition of order. Which is, of course, very important, given that he has just described Christ as the supreme measure. Because where there is measure, there must be order. That is correct. And that, that notion of measure plays a prominent role in, in all the dialogues. Uh, and you just mentioned why. It's important to the notion of order. Now, the title Soliloquies would suggest that's a more personal first-person book, or is it still a dialogue? It is a most remarkable dialogue because it is a dialogue between two characters who are one character. It's a dialogue between Augustine and his reason. So he actually coined the word soliloquy, and it literally means talking to oneself. I find, uh, I know that there's a famous quote about Wittgenstein saying that the intelligence of Augustine frightened him. I remember when I was at Princeton Theological Seminary, I took a reading class one-on-one about Augustine. And the book that started making me think about becoming a Catholic, because I was a Southern Baptist, was On the Trinity. And I just found that book, it just was like a Mahler symphony. I mean, it it contained the universe. (laughs) That is a tour de force, the On the Trinity do other do other Augustine scholars look upon that particular book with the same kind of awe that that you and I do uh, on the Trinity? Yes. Oh, absolutely. It's studied very closely, and it's interesting that he really was obsessed with the Trinity. A lot of my 
students at Baylor actually find this very perplexing. If you define Christianity as having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you, you're, you're thinking mainly in terms of just one of the divine persons. But for Augustine, it's always Trinitarian. And uh, both Protestant and Catholics, I think, in the last few centuries have become, in a sense, less Trinity-focused. But when you look at Augustine's writing, it's all over the place. I found, again, in in that book, and similarly to The Happy Life that we've discussed, this willingness to bring anything to bear. For example, doesn't he bring a drama by Seneca? And a character from that drama? Uh, in the soliloquies? Yeah, no, in uh, the Happy Life. Orate, Orata. Oh yes. So, I mean, he is doing so much in on the Happy Life. He is drawing from Seneca in a couple of ways. Seneca wrote a book called On the Happy Life. It's the exact same title, except the word order is different. Instead of Debi out of Vita. Seneca's work was De Vita Beata. But uh, one of the things that Augustine does in all of these dialogues is a, a broad engagement of the literature of the time. Well, you know, I'd, I'd love to... Would you come back and talk, say, about the soliloquies with us at a future date? Oh, absolutely. In some respects, that is my favorite of the Kasikiak okay. dialogue. I, I got a feeling when you were describing it that that, that one really uh, was was close to your heart. So I want to remind everybody that I've been talking with Professor Mike Foley of Baylor University. He has a website. I believe it's michaelpfoley.info. You can read about all those great drinking books. You can acquire them. And even read a little about what we've been talking about. He and his wife, Alexander, have a, lead a very rich life. I loved meeting them. And so I'm so glad, Mike, you'll come back and talk some more with us on Church and Culture. I would love it. Thank you so much, Steele. Thank you. And to all of you who are listening, I'll be back this day, this time, next week. If you have any comments or questions about Church and Culture, you can contact Deal Hudson at dhudson at AveMariaRadio.net.